This is Belize from UCLA Radio, and you're listening to The Menu. Good afternoon. You're tuned in to The Menu on UCLA Radio, a radio show about LA's wonderful food, culture, and the people who make it special. I'm your host, Belize. And I'm Henry. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Um, we have a very special guest on the show. Josh Lurie is the founder and CEO of Food GPS, one of the premier food blogs in Los Angeles and abroad. Um, he's often cited in other food publications such as Eater and Thrillist. Thank you very much for coming on the menu today, Josh. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we usually start our program with a um, fun question. Um, the segment is called, What Did You Have This Week? So we talk about a dish or a cocktail or anything food related that we tried out this week and we really liked. Um, do you want to go first, Josh? Okay, <laughs> I can do that. I don't remember too far back though since I have a newborn, so oh, congratulations. <laughs> my memory is kind of hazy. But I can remember back to yesterday <laughs> and recently moved to Eagle Rock, so been trying out all the restaurants there and went mm. to a cheese shop called Milk Farm. And they use Bub and Grandma's bread, which Ooh, is tasty. some of my favorite. And they made a Cubano, which was really good. Shaved pork loin, smoked pancetta, mustard. What else was on there? Some sort of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and then they pressed it, and it was nice and crackly, the bread, and uh, really good. I, I hope they repeat that. They rotate their sandwiches. Ah, fun. A cool neighborhood for food, huh? It, it looks like it. <laughs> What about you, Belize? What did you have um, this week? I went to Mila and Olive. I actually go there a lot to buy bread because it's um, closer to my house. And I really like their bread. Um, but I've actually never tried their food before. So I went there for dinner and I got olives for <laughs> starters. Uh, I ate a lot of olives in general. So that, you know, that was given. And then um, I had the vegan pasta, which is a farro... Casarecci, if I'm not mistaken. And it was very salty. It also had a lot of olives in it and also sun-dried tomatoes. Very, um, it had herbs like basil. It was like very light, but also like salty and indulgent. I, I liked it. You should incorporate olives into your aesthetic, I think. Yes, I, I've been posting a lot of olives recently oh, okay. on my <laughs> personal Instagram. But <laughs> yeah, what did you have? Um, I've been toning it down recently. I was this earlier this year, I was going way too hard on the fancy restaurants. Um, so I went to Tasty Noodle House, just like a good solid West, like LA Chinese chain. You know, if you can't, if you're not going out to SGV, um, there's a couple in West LA. Um, it's one in Hollywood and I went to the one on Sautel, um, um, got, beef noodle soup, which I think was my first time getting beef noodle soup. And I remember an article, I think, in the LA Times about the different um, ways it's prepared and how it's a very traditional dish. Um, and it was very tasty. It was really wonderful. I really haven't had that much, you know, ha have that many different uh, Chinese soups. I mean, you have like egg drop soup. You know, that's, I guess, what I used to have when I went to Chinese restaurants with my family, but nothing like that. And it was very yummy. And then they also do a really delicious um, eggplant with mushrooms, delicious, you know, marinated eggplant with mushrooms. So that was really tasty. Tasty Noodle House. Its name lives up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now that we're through with our fun little, we like getting to know each other <laughs> question, we can jump right in. And first of all, we wanted to ask about um, your origins and, you know, how did you get started? Um, so I guess the first thing that I want to ask is where did that passion for writing come from? Oh, the writing angle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wrote on my school papers in high school and in college, and it took a while before I felt like I was any good at it probably until the end of college where it sort of clicked for me. But I always enjoyed expressing myself through writing and that's where the that's where the writing aspect started and then worked 
in TV for about seven years for the TV shows JAG and NCIS. And I did all the research for those shows, but also did a bit of writing. So I wrote one story that made it to the air on NCIS. And then I co-wrote a Bollywood action movie. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Called Blue. <laughs> and it did apparently did so poorly at the box office <laughs> oh, no. that they scrapped plans for a sequel. But, but it you was, got one in, though. That's yeah, I got one in. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. I wrote it with my friend Brian Sullivan. But but I, I really enjoyed storytelling and liked food even more than I liked TV or movies at that stage. So just decided to apply the skills I developed writing and research to food and storytelling in a different medium. So you grew up in New Jersey, but um, really grew up eating in nearby Manhattan. Um, Do you think your family um, really impacted the way you view food now? Well, my father was always really into food, too. So he's the one who would take us into New York to explore different types of foods that we couldn't get in the suburbs. I mean, there was still some good stuff in the suburbs, too. I mean, even the basic pizza place there was pretty good. And Mm -hmm. we had kind of the Americanized Chinese food that I enjoyed and still (laughs) kind of look for, even though it's not readily available in L.A. And, um, yeah, so that was fun. So we would go eat. Chinese food in Chinatown in New York City. We'd have Peking duck. We'd do different barbecue places. My dad's always been a big barbecue fan. So barbecue in New York now I think is a little bit more developed. Back then it was basically old athletes like Mickey Mantle and Rusty Staub who would open restaurants and they would serve baby back ribs. That was the (laughs) version of barbecue that was available in the 80s. But we would go do that. And of course, deli food, a lot of Jewish deli food. Mm-hmm. Second Avenue Deli, back when it was at its or- original location, was pretty special to us. And then we would go to other delis in the city too. But that was basically the rotation. And then we would also try different Italian restaurants that were maybe up a notch or two from what you could get in the suburbs. Mm. Yeah. And you've also lived in a couple different places. You know, you went to college um, and then you decided to move to Los Angeles or be like based in Los Angeles. Um, Why did you choose L.A.? Well, it was primarily for the entertainment industry to start. Mm -hmm. I was telling Henry on the walk up here that I was very close to attending UCLA. I actually took classes here, a couple different sessions and really like UCLA and L.A. always have even did a summer program back in high school at UCLA, but um, ultimately decided to just go to someplace completely novel, (laughs) Nashville. And I'm glad I did now because it seemed inevitable in a way that I would end up out here. So it's good that I got to live in another place and see another side of the U.S. and another region and learn about that region's food culture too. That's been valuable. So I'm glad I did it. Um, so you 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 wrote that you crisscrossed the country seven times. Um, what do you think the most valuable thing you learned about food or not about food, maybe, um, while through eating foods of different cities? Don't get me wrong. Those trips were definitely food focused. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I took different routes was to explore different corners of the U.S. and kind of the foods and cuisines that you could only find in those locations. I mean, in a sense, with the rise of social media, it's easy to find regional foods like Nashville hot chicken, which was very unique to basically just a couple restaurants when I lived there in the 90s, and now it's proliferated all over. But the idea that you, you could find food with a sense of place really meant a lot to me. There were some mentors who helped to navigate these trips for me, like Jane and Michael Stern from Road Food, very influential writers for me. They have a book and had a book called Road Food, which basically was 500 restaurants across the country that focus on regional cuisines. And I used that to chart my path (laughs) when I was driving cross country back and forth. 
And then there was another writer named R.W. Apple, who is no longer with us, but was very influential in some of the same ways. He was a writer for the New York Times, and he also wrote books and had a column for the New York Times that uh, made a big impact on me. Thinking about really cuisine with a sense of place that you could only find in that location. And when you first started um, your blog, your website, Food GPS, did you think that it was going to turn into a career for you? Or was it, you know, just a hobby because you just, you know, you liked writing and you liked food and it just made sense? Well, when I started Food GPS in early 2005, it was really a way to uh, fill my spare time because I worked in TV. It was kind of a hurry up and wait environment where mm. we could be there until 11 at night, depending on what was happening on the show and how much was going on. So there was a lot of spare time and I did like writing already and I did like going to explore restaurants and it seemed natural to kind of <laughs> fill up that time by being able to share some of my favorite meals that I was experiencing around LA or beyond. And that was the original impetus. I never thought at that point that it was going to be a career. Hmm. I figured I might continue in TV, but then I kind of made a decision to press to see what was possible in TV. And when it became clear that um, it didn't, it wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna become a staff writer on NCIS, that kind of freed me up to take the leap and focus on food writing full time. Um, how can you tell, or how, when did you tell that Food GPS was becoming uh, successful and you know a source that people or other writers went to to you know look for food in LA? Well, it's kind of a small community, so I feel like we were propping each other up, especially at the beginning. Some of the other bloggers of the day, like uh, Caroline Pardia, Caroline on Crack, or Esther Sang from East RLA, people like that. Um, I got to meet them. Just There ended up being, I think, restaurants started to see the value in what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So they would start to invite us to restaurants. I remember that happening maybe around 2008. So I got to actually meet the people who I was reading. That was kind of fun. Mm. And there was really a kind of a community that supported each other. And I think we've all scattered at this point. Oh, really? <laughs> in terms of my generation, because <laughs> we all have families or just focused on different things. Not that many people stuck with it, but Caroline and Esther have as professional writers, too, and some other people, too, which is fun. Yeah, and, you know, you guys are all trying new things, going around L.A., um, not just L.A., but everywhere, and trying out new foods. And especially when you're writing, do you think a good palate develops simply through trying a lot of things? Or, I don't know, how do you, like, develop your palate or how do you determine whether something is good or not right you <laughs> you really only know what you know in a yeah. sense so yeah I mean the I, when you're talking about eating your first beef noodle soup and how much you liked it the next bowl of beef noodle soup you have you might think oh this one's even better maybe that one isn't that so good after all or this one stinks maybe that one was really great <laughs> so you kind of get a sense for a food's uh, place in the ecosystem. The more you experiences you have, I feel like, especially with travel, you kind, kind of that context is really important. Mm. I mean, we were talking uh, on the way in, Henry and I, about going to Japan, and L.A. certainly has strong Japanese cuisine compared to other parts of the U.S., but some of the things to, that are possible to experience in Japan are uh, not possible to experience here just because of the certain ingredients or you know, the distribution or just the, the cooking traditions that are present in other places. So it's very valuable just to be able to be able to get a better sense for 
<laughs> what what is actually happening where you are even even though you see certain things every day you know how does that actually fit into the greater food world mm. yeah. um so let's see um how what are the responsibilities um of a food writer to the city that they are representing that's a good question well I know certain uh, publications like the New York Times has been dinged a lot by Angelinos for not getting a clear picture of what was actually happening here. Like painting LA is kind of like too crunchy or out there when it's really not that at all. And I feel like if you're here <laughs> and you're out there experiencing, experiencing things versus just being you know, hold up in your apartment or in your house, actually getting out there and, you know, making an effort, you're going to have a better understanding of what the city has to offer. So I guess it's possible if you lived in LA and you never left the house, you wouldn't know more than the people from New York who drop in right. and, and don't have a clear vision of what's happening here. So I feel like getting out, getting an understanding also you can't know everything. So the idea that what's your focus is important too. Mm -hmm. So being true to the focus, whatever that those guideline initial guidelines are or however they develop, just staying true to that vision is important. Um, and do you think food blogs um, like yours and others provide a service to more like middle-class, upper-middle-class individuals or, um, you know, because of the price of going out to eat, um, especially also when you're traveling and going out um, during the, you know, during your daily life. Um, so do you think, is it, po is it possible for food writers to tailor their con like content for people who don't maybe have that income to go out to eat a lot or travel a lot? Like, like college students. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of the places that I tend to focus on are more family-run places, mm -hmm. kind of more in international cuisines. They're not necessarily the um, conglomerate-driven tasting menu yeah. experiences that are also available in L.A. I mean, there, we have so many opportunities to eat at all price points in L.A. and also all sorts of different cuisines. And for food bloggers or food writers to try to be everything to everybody, it seems like it's destined to fail in a mm, sense, yeah. because then w what are you, what's the story you're actually telling? I mean, I do go to trendy places too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also write for other publications and there's certainly a demand for getting perspective on like the hot new place. But, you know, when I have my stomach to myself, which is... <laughs> happens from time to time, I tend to favor kind of out of the way, mm. you know, more humble family run places. And just because a lot of people aren't telling those stories and, you know, how many stories do we need about the $200 tasting right. menu restaurant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are already exist. So kind of like adding value to the food writing landscape by telling lesser known stories, I feel mm. like is important, at least for me. Yeah, and I read one of your articles about um, the phenomenon of cheap eats. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that's why I kind of like um, relate that question to the cheap eats thing because um, you you say that the term is kind of derogatory and harmful, harmful to the restaurants. So yeah, one, like why is that um, for you know our listeners and what would be the alternative to like actually discover these restaurants in a non-problematic way? Right. So the idea that cheap eats these lists, talking about the best places for very little money, but the way they describe it being cheap, you know, it's devalues the ingredients, the experiences, the culture, the efforts, because a lot of these meals that these humbler restaurants are making <laughs> still take quite a bit of work mm -hmm. to put on the table. And 
depending on what part of town they're in, they uh, can't charge more because the basically it's a cycle because part of it is they can't charge more because people don't value the food high enough, mm -hmm. either in their community or outside of the community. And then there's people like food, other food writers per se. I mean, not all of them for sure, who see the international cuisines as lesser mm. um, when it's not. Do you think um, there's a sort of uh, hidden or unconscious uh, racism in regards to the valuation of food and menus? Like, why is, why, if, I mean, of course, ingredients, of course, play a part in valuation, but there's got to be some inflated value when it comes to meals prepared by, say, a French chef over a traditional, um, you know, meal that's that's not prepared by, you know, someone Right. Who's yeah, without a doubt. I mean, why would a, uh, why would a, a dish that takes all day to prepare, maybe multiple days, um, made from a recipe passed down through generations, you know, and still tastes incredible from a Sri Lankan chef, say, or a chef from, you know, Ukraine, you name it, South America somewhere, Guatemala. Why does why that have uh, less perceived value than something like, you know, some of the French cuisine mm -hmm. that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, without a, without a doubt, there's got to be some racist elements there. Um, before we dive more into the Los Angeles food scene questions that we have for you, um, I was also wondering, um, this is your full-time job and how do you, how, how do you finance or like sustain yourself, um, through a blog? Because it's a, now digital media is a very like popular platform. So we were wondering how does that work? It's been a challenge to stay as a professional food writer since 2005. And congratulations and on 15 years, though. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I mean, basically, the landscape does constantly change. I mean, I'd say at this point, the idea of blogs, people pointing to looking to blogs first, I feel like has faded a bit with the rise of platforms like Instagram mm -hmm. where people will just look at a photo with like a snappy caption and then <laughs> they might look to the recommendation, look for recommendations there versus blogs where it's decentralized and you have to basically go through all the different feeds and see what's new. And <laughs> I could see why people would just look at Instagram as more of a clearinghouse that way even though it doesn't go nearly as deep as, uh, as I would hope. But I, I understand how people you know, digest information at this stage, so <laughs> I'm not naive. <laughs> but I do write, basically, I think the biggest value Food GPS has had over the years is as a calling, co calling card in a way, hmm. just in terms of being able to build cre credibility I've had the uh, good fortune to meet all sorts of amazing people in the food and drink world like you're doing with this show and um, developed all sorts of deep connections. And then I'm able to parlay Food GPS as a calling card into writing opportunities for different publications. You know, currently write for sites like Thrillist and Eater LA and Dine LA. I got a story in Variety this week and hmm. wrote for New York Times last year. So cool. wow. it's been a it's been a, a fun uh, gateway just to other opportunities for sure. It's a name. A name really really helps. It's a it's a good snappy name. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll credit my uh, stepmom Jane for that <laughs> because when they were my when she and my dad were traveling in Portland, they knew that I had just been there. And this was would have been at the end of 2004. And 
she called asking about the bakery that I had raved about, and I directed it to directed them towards it. And she said, "Wow, you're like my food GPS." <laughs> That's really nice. Um, is it just you and working in the blog? For the most part, there's also mm-hmm. a beer editor named Sean Inman who. Mm. He's from Portland, which is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> Beer epicenter. And so he reached out, it got to be eight, nine years ago at this point, at least, saying that he was interested in writing for the site and uh, been able to make it work ever since. So he's got to be one of the foremost beer authorities in LA, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> So <clears throat> you mentioned that you have written for Eater. Um, there's a particular article um, that asked you and others in the LA dining scene to describe um, LA's dining scene from 2019 in one word. Um, uh, Gary Baum of The Hollywood Reporter said anxious. Andy Wang of Food and Wine said teetering. Kathy Chaplin of Eater said volatile. And Farley Elliott said maximum, as in peak saturation, which all sort of hinted towards, you know, saturation of the restaurant market in LA maybe veering towards collapse you said a flame why is that (laughs) (laughs) well part of that is just because of the like you're talking about the heat around the la food landscape just so many people outside the city are talking about it and then also a lot of uh, restaurants are using wood fire now Mm. in their cuisine whether it's pizza or just having big hearths where they cook the food over uh, burning wood burning embers (laughs) <laughs> I saw Orsa and Winston had a wood, I think a wood burning hearth. I, I think so, which I was like, what? Oh. What is a Japanese Italian tasting menu restaurant doing with like a hearth? And I d- couldn't see what they were doing, but they had one. So you must be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's certainly restaurants like uh, Auburn over in Hollywood or yeah. H- Hatchet Hall in Culver City. Yeah. And uh, Republic, I'm pretty sure they have one too. So Multiple probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might. I mean, they would need it given the volume. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely adds, can add something to the cooking, not just pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, well, all the other vocabularies kind of sound like, it, it sounds very apocalyptic, <laughs> um, to say the least. So... What do you think is going to be the result of this restaurant boom we're having right now? Well, you hinted at, I mean, there have been a lot of restaurateurs I've spoken with who've talked about some sort of reckoning, just (laughs) oversaturation, uh, just the real estate prices, labor prices, you know, even liability just spiking over the past few years. And, you know, also things like, coronavirus scare which you can't anticipate and people are freaked out about i think unnecessarily Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i mean it's it does it has thinned out travel and restaurant crowds which is sad and you know plays into our society's fear and paranoia which are pretty prevalent unfortunately but it's a reality now that restaurants aren't drawing the crowds because people are afraid to go out and then that's on top of the other market factors mm-hmm. that I was talking about. It does seem inevitable that we're going to see a thinning of the restaurant roster at some point. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the economy has seemingly been going <laughs> well enough to sustain the business for now and the growth. Um, do you think there's any way to, like, I guess, alleviate or circumvent that, you know? I guess downfall, or is it just the you know, the regular cycle of capitalism? Yeah. Do they have to close for it to be you know yeah. level again? Well, a lot of uh, new restaurants that are opening are switching to a more fast casual model where you'll have mm. less labor, so that would cut down the dollar amount in that column at least. But you know, the sense that certain areas are going to be affected more just because, you know, rent is not equal everywhere. And the idea that uh, the employees being able to live within commuting distance to the restaurants, I know that's become a challenge in, especially in a city like San Francisco, where it's just so exorbitant that the people you need to work there 
or not able to able to get the get to work in a reasonable manner. Right. And I'm sure that's happening in parts of LA now too. So that's certainly a factor, just the you know, income disparity and all sorts of social and political factors play into the restaurant world too, just like other aspects of society. Yeah. We don't talk about how political restaurants political and social restaurants can be. I mean, you you pointed out the you know, people aren't going to restaurants because of coronavirus, but they're primarily not going to Chinese restaurants. Yeah. And I've been told, like after I went to Tasty Noodle House, I was told why, you know, or asked, why'd you go there? Like, you shouldn't go there. And I think that's extremely disrespectful and ignorant. Um, and it's just another, I guess, story um, on how um, connected the restaurant industry is to our politics and, um, yeah, economy. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, also the labor in a lot of restaurants, you know, behind the scenes yeah. or in front of the scenes or people running the restaurants, a lot of it is powered by immigrants. Mm. And that's certainly become more and more political under this administration, unfortunately. Yeah. And speaking of restaurants closing, there are some restaurants who have recently been closing down to reinvent themselves, um, changing their whole menu and their interior, um, you know, to match the quickly changing scene. And we've seen examples of this with Melis and the Firehouse Hotel. So why do you think this has been happening? And do you think it's worth investing a lot of money into rebranding? Well, I mean, I was at... Not at uh, Melise recently, but I was at Citroen, right. which they're mm. both under the same roof. Mm-hmm. Melise is kind of the higher end in the back room Are they connected? Experience. Or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Melise is in back, and that's kind of a more uh, luxurious experience. And then Citroen is, seems to be a hit early on, just in terms of kind of has more energy than I, what I remember from the previous incarnation of Melise and I thought the food was good, so it seems like likely that it will work, especially in Santa Monica where a lot of the market factors we're talking about right. don't seem to apply <laughs> since uh, you know people are generally more well-off than in some other neighborhoods, mm. so they could support that sort of restaurants on a more regular basis. Um, when the market cr- – so you started Food GPS in – 2005 and then when the market crashed in 2008 what what did you do and you know what should bloggers food bloggers do in in if when a market crashes when the market crashes again because it will well (laughs) i mean i think relying on blogs as a primary source of income is not realistic (laughs) so let's be clear about that (laughs) youtuber food youtuber or you know food instagram you know right exactly so i mean in any down economy i think i'm not an economist but it seems like (laughs) what worked for me was diversification and that's how i was able to keep it going Mm. just you know maybe you write about different things Maybe you have supplement with some other sort of job. Uh, I mean, over the years and more recently, I've also uh, consulted for different, you know, property owners for say, for instance, who are looking to bring interesting food and drink vendors into their space. So that's a way to diversify. And then consulting on different concepts, try to uh, optimize uh, what they're looking to get out of the experience for diners and from a business perspective. So, and then occasionally we'll lead food tours, custom food tours for different food corporations. So I feel like relying just on one aspect of the food world would probably be too limiting and might not be sustainable, mm-hmm. but being open to different opportunities, even tangential or seemingly uh, unrelated <laughs> might make sense in given the in given the uh, economy. What do you mean like food tours? Like um, of what would you give tours to 
people who want to see food companies or what can you explain a little bit more about those sort of tours that's interesting oh, in those experiences basically i've worked with food companies you know national brands who are looking for inspiration so they'll focus on a particular theme in a different place so i led tours for them in cities like seattle which i did last year it was a three-day experience and then done many tours in LA and even San Diego did a two-day tour there. So so is it like they they need inspiration for a new national product and they're looking for someone who can like who knows place like you and can show them this sort of in you know inspiration from somewhere? Right. Okay. Sometimes the goal isn't as clear. I mean, sometimes like there's certain like verticals, I guess, or pillars they're looking to you know, bolster, but, and then they'll have specific ideas of what they're looking for. And then I would program a tour for them and lead the tour and provide all the context and like literally will walk them through every experience. And um, in one of your articles, you ask people in the food industry, um, to reflect upon like which restaurant they miss the most. Um, and I like particularly like that article because first of all, they were all about restaurants that I've never heard or like, yeah. you know, um, dined at. Um, and some of the people, um, ha you know, talked about the same restaurants. And so is, you know, is the reason for why they close is, you know, economic or like the regular hardships of maintaining a restaurant or is there something else to it because they were so beloved um, and do you think they'll ever reopen or is it time to like move on to better bigger things it's unlikely these restaurants will ever reopen I mean some of it is economic where they just you know they might make great food mm -hmm. or create a really great environment but they're not good at business, so they can't make it work. Or it could just be, as is the case in a lot of uh, restaurants, the second, the next generation doesn't want to keep it going. Maybe the mm -hmm. owners started it 30 years ago and they want to retire, <laughs> and then the kids have no interest. They have other interests. And, I mean, in some cases, it's immigrant families where the parents will come over and start a restaurant and it's it's successful and they've created su such good opportunities for their family that the uh, kids don't feel the need to go down the same path because mm. mm -hmm. ultimately running restaurants is grueling, just relentless work <laughs> and a lot of times thankless work. And that's not for everybody. So that could be true of the kids or just some people might might not physically be able to do it forever, too. Mm. Yeah. Is that why you describe it as a Sisyphean task? No. <laughs> Did I? It is. Yeah. Yes. I agree with that, too. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I can't imagine personally running a restaurant, but I'm very <laughs> thankful for the people that do. Mm. Yeah. So is um, James Beard. Um, <laughs> they just <laughs> James Beard Award semifinalist just came out, and there's a lot of representation in LA. Um, Nightshade for best is for best new restaurant. Um, let's see, Ludo Lefebvre. How do you say it? Ludo Lefebvre. Lefebvre. Lefebvre yeah. of Twamec for outstanding chef. Um, uh, Kogi Barbecue, outstanding restaurant, and John Yao of Cato for rising chef. Um, and they also um, created, made California their own category, um, which is awesome. But so that must mean there's a lot of lot of new great, you know, chefs coming to California for them to be giving it its own category. Why do you think more, you know, good chefs are popping up here? Well, to say that they're popping up here now, I've feel like isn't quite really <laughs> right. accurate. They were always here. I feel like the James Beard Foundation, which is based in New York, finally took notice oh, yeah. of what of the greatness that we enjoy on a regular basis. And it's good to see California and LA in particular get more recognition. 
I guess it's like another biased um meet you know award sort of like Michelin you know based out of you know is it Paris or then Paris or France I don't know I mean I know Paris and France but I don't know if it's Paris or a different city anyway um who who bias a, a very high um highly valued award that um puts more bias on their regional uh, cuisine yeah I mean you know a lot of people have biases but then there's also out of sight out of mind yeah and just people have blind spots and I feel like when it comes to awards it's so subjective yeah. that I don't put much stock in it yeah. but I also recognize that the people who are getting acknowledged it could really be career changing for them just because there's so much attention and so much amplification of what they're doing through these awards that it could really make their career so I'm happy for them but you know, it's not nearly complete the yeah. recognition. It's pretty baseless. Why don't why doesn't LA and California just create their own very prestigious award? Let's have the California prestigious award. I mean <laughs> I don't know. Does the LA Times one hundred and one best restaurants list kind of get into that category? But we're not giving them awards. But it's so not, cl- not close yet, right, to the value that people yeah. hold in these awards that, you know, don't truly mean anything. I mean, you know, yeah. Right. I mean, the LA Times, I think people in LA do value that list. And I do. Certainly the diners uh, would go to restaurants based on what they see on that list. So that's important. I mean, as far as driving tourist dollars, though, I mean, that's another level because people in LA would certainly know about, well, would hopefully know about restaurants like Nightshade or. What were some of the other ones that you were mentioning? Uh, Cato, right? Cato. That's number one yeah. on their list. I mean, I can't imagine trying to get in there at this point. It's such a small restaurant. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I was looking at uh, reservations, you know, a year ago or whatever before, um, before this list came out, and it was it was pretty open, you know. But now it's just impossible. There's not a single reservation available. So that list definitely changed everything. That's awesome for yeah, yeah. great talented chef. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, between all those awards and lists and stuff, you always kind of, we've been always go- going back to that idea of it's about the stories and it's about the people. So how can regular diners like us can do our part in appreciating um, the restaurants and the people who work at these restaurants? Well, everybody basically has a forum at this point through <laughs> social media. I mean, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or just if you have a good experience, just let people know. Mm-hmm. And then maybe somebody you know will be inspired to repeat that experience. And that will help keep these restaurants in business. So um, as a, I'm a geography major, or I was, um, and a map maker, as we talked about. Um, very intrigued uh, about the intersection between uh place, space, and food. I'm completely enamored by, you know, eaters, just very simple maps, you know, which are so simple, but I love them. Um, How do you think, you know, navigation and mapping um, can be integrated with food, um, whether as a career or just as a principle? Well, there's a lot of different ways to slice up the world, as I'm sure you're aware so, I mean, even the way we describe L.A., the idea of, like, what's east side, what's west side, like, that's a hot debate for mm. sure. <laughs> and where does that even begin? So, I mean, some of it is subjective. I mean, borders change over time, as you know. And it's, I think, generally starting local is important mm. just in terms of being able to – uh see what's around you and be able to describe what's around you is important when it comes to geography. So, I mean, I would say that. Um, Yeah, speaking of geography, now I guess a trend in the industry is being more sustainable and having, you know, um, having sustainable practices. in your restaurant. So do you think rest- chefs and owners 
have this responsibility to take on more sustainable practices, uh, you know, especially like local family-owned and traditional restaurants? Well, in a sense, sustainability Mm -hmm. is important. I'm all for it. But for a lot of smaller family-run restaurants, sustainability is probably an afterthought Mm -hmm. and probably a luxury (laughs) just in terms of being able to support what they do every day you know, they might not necessarily go to the farmer's market or, you know, buy eco-friendly plates or use, you know, eco-friendly takeout mm-hmm. containers. <laughs> and, you know, they might not invest in metal straws and things like that. Yeah. You know, sustainability, I feel like, is a luxury for a lot of people, unfortunately, mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, it is important and i feel like the people who have the resources if you can do it do it and that's great and that would make a large impact but you know i think a lot of times some of the smaller restaurants are just focused on survival Mm. yeah um okay we're closing in we have 10 more minutes we're closing in on the end of our interview i wanted to ask you um you brought up auburn i've been for dinner once but I haven't been for brunch. You particularly like the brunch, especially um, a burnt cinnamon croissant, which I hear is amazing. Can you talk to us about that croissant? That took me by surprise. <laughs> uh, what would you think a burnt cinnamon croissant looked like or tasted like mm. just based on reading those words? I would assume they would like kind of like a cinnamon roll. They would mix the cinnamon in the dough and then bake it like that. I would think it was like or maybe a churro. Like, <laughs> oh, or maybe like cinnamon sugar, like coating yeah. on the um, croissant, and then like burning it, like a like a flambe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I could have seen both of those happening, and they <laughs> did neither one. So that's why I thought it was like so surprising and so special, in that it was fully integrated. It wasn't a coating, just the burnt cinnamon they folded in. I'm not, I, I can't say I know exactly how they did it, <laughs> but it was more of like a caramelized uh, element of the croissant, which was also had the great hallmarks of a croissant, which were buttery, flaky, pull apart, you know, everything you think of with a great croissant, plus that burnt cinnamon. Tasty. Um, you, uh, so you have a new daughter. Right. Congratulations. Yeah. Daughter number two. Daughter number two. Um, where do you go if you want to go out to dinner, but you have to take your daughters? Um, I guess if they're picky. I don't know if they're picky or not. Well, depending on the day, our older daughter can be pretty picky. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do for our older daughter is definitely pack some sort of iPad <laughs> just in case <laughs> of, you know, tantrum control. And then we always have, uh, at this point, our younger daughter is only two and a half months old. So generally we'll wear her at dinner. So that way in a carrier yeah, on my body <laughs> where she just falls asleep. <laughs> but we're, we basically just go to regular restaurants and just know that we might not be there as long as we would have in the past. Okay. But definitely eating with kids has changed the way that we eat, and then certainly eat dinner. We eat dinner at home a lot more, and then I'm always out during the day, and then sometimes I'll go out after bedtime. Yeah, wow. <laughs> kind of like the second shift. <laughs> um, when we interviewed John and Vinny for the show, they were talking about how, you know, I mean, they make brilliant pizza, and sometimes how they would put frozen pizza in front of their children, and they would be like, this is the best thing I've ever had in my life. And they would just feel so discouraged. Um, do you like get a sense of, you know, a new perspective found now that you have, you know, two daughters? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the things that my wife and I, she also works in food. Mm-hmm. So the, the, some of the things that we really are love are just mm-hmm. totally lost on them. <laughs> Certainly... The uh, younger daughter who's not on to solid food yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Um, okay. So where – so oh, it sounds like are you going out in the day 
to eat? Are you? Do you have each day planned? Like, can you take us through a day of like the food GPS or whatever your day to day is right now? Right. So I was talking about kind of when my stomach is my own, yeah. which is basically like a spare meal. Anything goes. Doesn't happen that often <laughs> at this point. I've uh, been working on stories for thrillists on Eagle Rock, my new neighborhood, which is basically a good way to get to know my neighborhood's food scene <laughs> and then also tell the story for them. And then Chicken Wings is another new story for me. And then last month for them, I wrote about hot dogs and Glendale. <laughs> and then also have stories about Filipino food for Eater, uh, a Persian restaurant in the valley that's new and exciting, and a um, Egyptian food truck. Ooh. Yeah. What's so, that? <laughs> uh, that one's called Pharaoh's Fam, and I'm writing about that for them coming soon. So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No spoilers. So basically, I mean, I, I have a long laundry list of places that I have to cover for every guide and then just individual stories. And then I'll see what I'm able to do each day. So generally the night before, I'll form a plan, like what's possible the next day because things come up when you have kids and mm-hmm. also uh, trying to free up my wife so she could get out too. <laughs> so basically um, whatever's possible is the focus. So today I went to Tacos 1986 since I knew I'd be in Westwood. And tonight we've got, there's an Arepa truck, a Colombian food truck mm. that's going to park in our neighborhood. <laughs> so nice. we'll be able to walk to that. <laughs> and then don't even know what's going to happen this weekend. It's an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Um, our last question before we close out is what is, you know, a piece of advice or, you know, some guidance that you want to give to people who want to write a blog about food maybe or who want to be in the food industry in general? Right. So to keep the focus, uh, keep focus to start with, like, what are you actually interested in? Mm-hmm. What do you know? What do you want to know? <laughs> and because even in L.A., it's not possible to cover everything. I'll never go to all the restaurants I want to visit. And what interests you? What can you see interesting you in five years, potentially? And do you want to keep telling stories that fit within that framework? Do you want to write about bakeries? Do you want to write about ice cream shops or coffee or French food or fine dining or you know, little family-run places? You know, what are the stories that you want to tell? And because to keep it going, you want to have to keep the interest in that focus. Josh Lurie is the founder and CEO of LA Food Blog, Food GPS. Thank you so much for coming on the menu today, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And the menu will be back next week with another guest at 12 p.m. on uclaradio.com. I'm Henry. And I'm Belize. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in.